3: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome to the Tudor Dixon podcast. I think you guys are really going to like this podcast because when I talked to this lady a few months ago, I was like, wow, this is like the all of the answers that we're looking for because right now, I know everyone is asking What is the political message for 2024? And I have shared my opinions, but of course those are just opinions. But I did meet Melanie a few months ago and she is, I guess I would say, a messaging guru. In fact, she coaches candidates, elected officials, even executives, and that's what she does for a living. She's here to tell us how she helps people craft the right message to be persuasive and successful. But before we get into that, you know, I always like to talk to you about your health, and I think that's important because you can't put a price on your health. And I like to show that I stay energized and keep doing what I love every day because I get the maximum servings and nutrition of fruits and vegetables every day. I rely on Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies in a capsule to give me the maximum nutrition of 31 real whole fruits and veggies every day. Balance of Nature is giving Everyone 35% off their first preferred order plus free shipping right now with promo code TUTOR. So just go to balanceofnature.com and enter promo code TUTOR to get started today. Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies in a capsule are powdered after an advanced vacuum cold process, keeping the maximum nutrition intact. Put your health first the easy way with Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies in a capsule. Get 35% off your first preferred order shipped to you free with promo code TUTOR at balanceofnature.com. I feel confident about my health because of Balance of Nature. You should check out all the testimonials from people like you on their website to see how Balance of Nature is making a difference in their lives. So go now to balanceofnature.com and get 35% off your first preferred order shipped free with promo code TUTOR. Now let's get back to that other messaging because that's really important. Let's welcome in Melanie Sturm to the podcast. She is the founder of Engage to Win and the Win Coach, like I said, where she coaches elected officials, candidates, and corporate executives in the art of persuasion and winning over an even skeptical audience. And right now, I think everybody is a little bit skeptical out there. So we need your help.
5: Well, oh, thank you. And I'm delighted to be on your show. I'm a big fan. You are such an insightful interviewer. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Not sure I'm going to come up with a winning message for 24. But uh, I think actually between the two of us, we probably could.
4: Well, you know, it's funny, because I've talked ever since I talked to you. So I, I'll just tell our audience here. When I spoke to you, I think you said something really critical because we talked about this trans messaging and that has been a really hot topic on the right side of the aisle with folks talking about protecting kids from trans surgeries and things like that. And you made a really interesting point. You're like, that is really going after an individual people see that as going after an individual instead of protecting that individual and you have to be careful about how you talk about things like that really something that I hadn't fully understood but as I've seen it play out I'm like wow this is really true if somebody feels like you are in any way attacking a person they really get turned off and those few people that you wanted to bring over from the center you're not winning them right?
5: Exactly. That's my power of persuasion number three. The winning side always fights for people, not against, not for or against things and definitely not against people. So when we come across as fighting against trans, uh, it's not a surprise that we get, uh, misconstrued as wanting or, or accused at least of wanting to commit trans genocide. That's why mm-hmm. I always say we should be fighting for the people who are hurt by bad policies. So, In this case, we would be fighting for the children who are neither uh, cognitively or developmentally prepared to consider such controversial even radical ideas. Why would you ever want to put in the mind of a young child that they may have been born in the wrong body, that they could change it? Uh, and we want to fight for people, uh, f- fight for the parents, I mean, who should have the sole discretion to decide whether and when to expose their children to these ideas. And of course, in the case you're talking about, we want to fight for girls and women and their sports, mm. for example.
4: Right. So you mentioned that was number three, because you have six powers of persuasion that you talk to people about. And that's something that honestly, I love this because. There's no one that does this. I mean, at least I didn't have this experience. You know, it's like you have consultants who sit down and they're <laughs> like, okay, I think this is the message for Michigan. But there's nobody that really is coaching you on how to express, the, express express that message in the right way, how to talk about it, how to win people over. So if you can just kind of go okay. through those powers of persuasion with us.
5: Sure. Uh, and I guess I should say uh, I came to this over a period of time,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
5: having been writing a column in a, my background's finance, but I, I started to write a column where I live here in Aspen, Colorado for an audience that was predisposed to disagree with me. And Hmm, I knew when I started writing.
4: Anybody who knows anything about (laughs) Aspen, it is very (laughs) liberal.
5: Yes, and in fact, the the editor of the Aspen Times, when he approached me, he asked if I would help him diversify the opinion page. And I always joke it's not because he needed a woman or a Jew, and <laughs> I just didn't want to. I didn't want to be the scourge of Aspen. And I, I had uh, he approached me because I had been doing point counterpoints uh, uh, with the Democrats prior to the twenty ten midterms, and. I, I told him I would do it, but I didn't want to parrot Republican talking points. And I, I, I launched my column calling it, Think Again, You Might Change Your Mind. Mm. don't have to. And so the idea was that I wanted to expose readers to unconsidered facts and arguments. Trust me here, they weren't. And in the process, my my premise was that in order to have a free and fair society, we have to have an informed and thoughtful citizenry. And that's what I was trying to do. And I I read up on all the masters of communication from Dale Carnegie to Simon Sinek and Stephen Covey and others. And I adopted a, a writing style that made me hearable. And one of the things that I discovered is that there's a difference between expressing your opinion as is as in an op-ed and actually persuading, which is what I wanted to do. I, I really wanted to change minds. I think again, mm. you might change your mind. And what I found having adopted this uh, readable writing style is that not only did I become popular, uh, you know, from social media metrics, but people did not perceive me as ideological. And so when I realized that I, I tried to um, put together a list of the things that I was doing that was making myself readable. And it was around that time in 2015 that I I, uh, launched Engage to Win to share that. And uh, so I have these six powers of persuasion. Mark Twain said, if I had more time, I could have written something shorter. So I've been at this now for a while and I've condensed what I learned in writing my column into these six powers of persuasion. And so the first one is about you are the message Your nonverbal cues and 60, you probably know this well, having been a candidate, 60 to 90% of in-person communication is actually nonverbal. You can make people predisposed to like you or dislike you, depending on your your nonverbal communication cues. The second one is and everything really centers around the second one, the, the the others are all designed to help you achieve the second one, which is find the common ground and try to stay on the common ground and definitely start with common ground. I think because that, persuasion- that one is interesting to me
4: because we find it so hard to do that today. So how do you do that? Because I, we talk a lot on the podcast about We have groups that are in black and white and nobody is in the gray area. And that's where most of the decisions are made in the gray. So how do we get people to that common ground?
5: Well, I actually, and I I challenge you, Tudor, to see if I can't do this. Uh, I actually think with one message, we can appeal to persuadables while powering down hostiles and not giving them ammunition to use against us. And then uniting our friendlings, which is becoming increasingly difficult, especially as we go into this uh, primary year and election Mm -hmm. year. And so how do you do that? Um, so finding the common ground, um, the way I put it is that you want to say something that you know is going to resonate with the person you're talking to. And from to just to condense it to we know from social science and behavioral science that that people, things that you say that will resonate with people generally are when you fight for people and you use a fairness and compassion frame. So that's power persuasion three and four right there. And, uh, and I'll, I'll be happy to demonstrate this in a second, but just to give you the fifth power of persuasion is the power of the story. Mm -hmm. I just need to say George Floyd and that story you, you obviously know, propelled a huge movement. And then the sixth is the power of the pivot to come back to that common ground. I think Reagan said your 80% friend isn't your 20% foe. So there are certain rhetorical devices I teach that can help you get back to that common ground. Uh, One of them is to say, I worry, and people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. So when you say, I worry, you're conveying that you care, and then it's going to really force you to pivot to a a persuasive message, a a fairness and compassion frame message fighting for people. Um, And so the other thing is a very important way to find common ground or pivot back to common ground is to ask a question. And so, um, I'll just demonstrate with a pretty non-controversial issue. Well, it's controversial, but it's not, uh, as, uh, uh, vexing, let's say, as the trans issue Mm -hmm. that we're always on the defensive on, but let's just take, uh, increasing the minimum wage. Uh, so, uh. It's actually the case that a majority of people are for increasing the minimum wage, including Republicans. And we have, um, when those when people are fighting against it, they have a tendency to talk about business. And that's a very a Republican thing, talk about business. Um, but what I always teach is I fight, identify the most vulnerable people who are hurt by a bad policy and fight for them. And uh, conversely, if you have a good policy, identify the most vulnerable who are helped by that good policy and fight for them. So, in the case of minimum wage, uh, you could say, um, "I I believe in a living wage. I just worry about young minorities, and if they can't get a job at ten dollars an hour." how will they ever get a job at $15 an hour? And if they can't get their hand on that opportunity ladder, how will they ever climb it to a living wage? And that's not fair. I always say, if you could say that's not fair, you're persuading. So there I I sort of put it all together in that one example.
4: Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast.
2: I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times.
1: With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: You look at 2024 right now. I mean, a lot is happening. And people are trying to figure out how to not only talk about it, but not offend while talking about it. We, I mean, if you look at just what happened on October 7th, we now have seen in America, we really have never seen because we have an America divided on race and ethnicity, really. And so you have these universities where we see students that are out there and they are defending Hamas. And we have Jewish students who are going, how, how can you do this? How do you argue that in this in this um, in political environment right now? I know, obviously, we see Republicans who are saying, we, we stand with Israel, we take care of Israel, but you have a lot of these arguments that are saying exactly what you're saying. I worry about the Palestinians. I don't think this is fair. So how do you have that conversation with with folks in that, that don't really... Mm-hmm. Who have never been involved in this conflict before and suddenly are now out there marching?
5: right, so uh, one of the uh, silver linings of the catastrophe of October seventh is that that curtain has been pulled uh, movement that has taken over not just universities but it's k through twelve, and I work a lot with school board members, candidates for office, activists who want to speak up at school board meetings and um i was just out in california where they a- actually have an ethnic studies curriculum and a mandate that all students who graduate from california high schools have to pass this this curriculum have to pass this uh ethnic studies test and what it's teaching is that uh and, and this will sound familiar because it's what you're hearing said about israel the irony is It actually isn't true. It's the least true of Israel uh, uh, compared to any of the other Western uh, nations that it applies to, uh, which by the way, are the freest, most prosperous, most decent, most fair societies in human history. Um, But what they're teaching, that the white supremacists who settled America, so they crossed the plains. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and I used to learn the pioneer was a heroic, honorable person. They were encouraged to go settle the West, even given land uh, by uh, Abraham Lincoln helped pass that legislation to go um, settle the West, civilize it, and, um, and create a, a, a opportunity and prosperity in parts of this nation. And instead of teaching it that way, the way I learned it when I was growing up, what they're teaching in ethnic studies is the pioneers were uh, white supremacists who capitalized on systemic racism at the time. And they colonized uh, in a genocidal way, the West, uh, stealing the land of the indigenous people, oppressing them, and even annihilating, annihilating them. And so if that sounds... Familiar, it's now being said about Israel, so obviously, this is all not true, and in the case of israel is, is Israel has is actually governed today and uh, uh and and its population predominantly are people who have been there since you know the beginning of the Bible. Uh, so how do you talk about it? and I'm glad you asked that question. I actually felt compelled to write a column about it and then sent a newsletter out to my subscribers couple of weeks ago or last week, actually. And so what I did in trying to make this case is, uh, I show, I'm trying to make a fairness appeal, a compassion appeal. I titled the column, how can we ensure all babies matter? Mm. And I ended the column by asking the question, um, if Palestinians had moral leaders who believed their lives mattered wouldn't that make peace more likely ensuring all babies matter? I think that's more or less the way I put it. And so I ask it as a question. So when I ask it as a question, instead of making it a declarative statement, then people are brought in to answer the question themselves. That's why questions can be more persuasive and help bring people to common ground. And so in the in the, in the the middle of the column, though, I do acknowledge that the uh, Palestinians, especially the Gazans, Uh, are oppressed, terribly oppressed. And Mm -hmm. that it's a tragedy that these people who live just one inch on the other side of the border of Israel don't enjoy the same opportunity and prosperity and rights as Arab Israelis have who live inside of the border of Israel. And they're 21% of the population. And you'd be surprised how many people don't know that because Israel is called an apartheid nation, right? But 21% of the population are Arab Israelis. They are in the military. They are in the Knesset, their mm-hmm. parliament. They are on the Supreme Court. And um, they're vibrant members of Israeli society, which is very diverse, unlike uh, Gaza, and so when you show that you uh, as I tried to do with that column that that Palestinian lives would be considerably enhanced if Hamas weren't governing governing them, then you come across as a uh, a fair uh, uh, analyst or a fair commenter on on the situation and that you're fighting for these people it's just not fair they have to live in these conditions
4: hmm. So I think it's interesting because you talk about it not being about winning that, though. not You don't have to win every debate. You, your talking points don't have to be right. You Sorry. are supposed to be winning people over. And I have to say, I think that on our side, we oftentimes forget this. And we've created whole organizations about winning debates rather than winning people over. And it's just interesting to me because I've had some supporters who have come to me just in the past few weeks and gone, man. I think we realized that we were putting money into projects that were about winning debates, but not bringing people over to our side. Actually, that sometimes is pushing people away from our side. So how do you, how do we change that mindset? Because I think with social media, it became kind of the way that the right was seen. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but the only way that our side could be seen because we believed we were silenced was to be loud, take charge, and say we won. We Mm -hmm. won this talking point. And that has ultimately, in my opinion, and in many of my supporters' opinions, it has harmed us and driven people to the other side.
5: So I always emphasize, and this is a little different when you're working with a candidate, but. Hostiles, by definition, are people that cannot be converted to our side. And yet, we spend so much time focused Mm -hmm. on hostiles. Candidates have to. And when you're in a debate and you're going up against your opponent, who's by definition a hostile, uh, you have to uh, engage them. But I always say to people don't engage a hostile unless. You're in the presence of persuadables, and if you approach them and engage to win style with these six powers of persuasion, the persuadables will be drawn to you and your thoughtfulness, and repelled by the hostility of the hostile. And I, I could give you many examples mm-hmm. of how I've, I've done this, uh, but it's um, uh, you know on the, just on the issue of Israel is just to, to be advocating. Aren't aren't wouldn't Palestinians be better if Hamas weren't governing them, is a thoughtful thing to say about this. Um, you know, it's uh, also the case that uh, when we talk about, um, you know, equity policies, uh, that you know, I support equity policies that lift diversely talented children from where they are to their fullest potential. That's a hmm. who's going to disagree with that? Um, uh or what, what I said before is that this idea that the um the trans stuff that we are um better off when we're fighting for kids to grow up without the ideas that might cause them anxiety. We have a a teen mental health crisis now. So wouldn't it be better to not plant the seed in a child's mind that maybe they're born in the wrong body? So so anyway, back to this point of don't worry about the hostile unless you're in the presence of persuadables. And if you're in a debate as a candidate, obviously you have the opportunity to win persuadables over. You're never going to, convert the hostile or the hostile supporters it's the persuadables you're after and the way you do that is coming across as likable and as thoughtful Uh, i i think the 2016 election actually is proof that people will vote for you if they don't like you but they won't vote for you if they think you don't like them and sometimes oh, interesting and, and that's so, a good point so so hillary you know, uh, uh, i would say Trump actually fought for the forgotten men and women of this nation, went to the northern Midwest and actually campaigned where Hillary wouldn't. And meanwhile, she called those people deplorables. And so, you know, the goal is always to try to come across as thoughtful. And so that's why staying on common ground and talking in a way that shows that you care about people and is fair and care oriented is one way to do that. So like on another issue, we often fight against unsustainable entitlement. So instead of, and it's not a surprise that we get accused of wanting to throw granny off a cliff when we say that we want to pull, and Mike Lee actually Mm -hmm. said this or other Republicans who've said that we want to pull social security up by its roots, right? Better way to say that is to say that it's unfair that young people paying into the system now won't get their benefits when they retire. Hmm. That's a, that's hearable to people from across the spectrum, and it makes them connect to the notion that, well, we better fix this because that's not fair to
4: the next generation. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast.
3: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss.
4: I think oftentimes we don't think deeply about the way we say things. And and I, I think this on both sides, but just the other day, we were speaking to someone who was like, you know, when I go out there and campaign, I'm going to talk about the fact that we need to bring the family back and then we would have fewer drug overdoses. And it's just funny to me because I think that sometimes you can step out of it and put your candidate hat on. And I'm like, I get. Where you're trying to go with this. But if you've lost a family member, which so many of us have to a drug overdose, you just blamed the family, you know? And it's really hard because everybody says, I don't want to be a politician. You're not a politician. I mean, well, once you've entered the arena, you are a politician. But it's also about really being thoughtful. Once you are in that political arena, think about your answers. Think about all sides. And it's hard because when you're a candidate, you have people pushing you in so many different directions. So how do you keep that candidate focused on what, like you said, what person could you hurt with this message and how can you adjust it so somebody doesn't walk away going, gosh, exactly the Hillary Clinton effect. That person doesn't like me. They think I'm wrong.
5: Right. Yeah, I I think uh, it's one of the reasons when I I do debate prep with candidates and they say, oh, if I have a brain freeze, what should I think of? And I say, just say, I worry, because that's what will show that you care Mm -hmm. and it will help you pivot to the people you worry about and should be Mm -hmm. a fair and care type of message. Um, So, you know, like on renewable energy to say, I worry about people who today, given the the price, the inflation, the, the the increase in energy prices causes the prices of everything in the economy to go up, and I worry that there are people today who are having to choose between heating and eating, and that's not fair. You know, I so think just, that
4: also it, people need to remember there's a difference between being careful and giving up your message because we, you have to be careful. And sometimes you can actually use their words to get people to understand what you're saying. But I think that on, I I know that I would say right of center, folks have been like, if you use the word equity, that's a trigger and you're a bad person and you're a rhino and you're, but if you start talking about what does, what does equity really mean? And you know what, let me take that back for a minute. Let's talk about Equality. Let's talk about what does what do you want equity to be? You want equity to be an opportunity for everyone. Well, we want an opportunity for everyone too. But sometimes it's hard because if you try to use those words, your own side goes, No, no, I'm done with you.
5: So I get that. I, I may blow your mind or your audience mind here, but one of the things that I teach in the area of education and this diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, issue is why have those words resonated? Why did a movement get created around them? Mm. It's because they all have the patina of fairness. Mm. And so they have the, the left has managed to distort those words. And people who hear them just assume they mean fairness. So when we say we're fighting against DEI or we're against DEI, then we get accused of being against fairness. Or against the common rule. And when I teach my education workshop, I have videos of people who are speaking up at school board meetings who are opposed to DEI. And then other people who stand up who say DEI is just the golden rule, you know? So that's why when I, I encourage people to, to take back those words. So diversity means teaching multiple perspectives and equity means lifting differently talented people up to their Fullest potential, and inclusivity means, in the case of education, involving parents, and uh, or in the in, right now on campus, including Jewish students in and mm, um, right. uh, protecting them as you would anyone else. That um, you you want to have fair a fair application of free speech rules on campus. Um, and so it's totally inclusive. So I've just taken back those words. And, and just one little success that I want to share is I work with, uh, I've worked with members of a school board. They had a, a 4 3 uh, conservative majority, uh, going back two years ago when they won it. And over the last two years, they managed to implement lots of policies. The last one was, we, we hear a lot about this Parental Bill of Rights, these things that are being passed by school boards or even at the state level, but that has a very sort of right, uh, right of center, patriotic um, connotation, and it can be a red flag to people who see themselves on the left. But the way to pull them in is to call it a uh, family inclusion and parental partnership agreement. Mm. And, In the case of the school board that just passed this last June, uh, even the progressive members of the school board had to vote for it because it included inclusive in it. And uh, and then just now at the last election, uh, the school board uh, managed that they're now six to one. They've been increasing their conservative. Yeah.
4: Wow. That. So I think that's where we find people a little bit afraid. They're like, I don't want to push the envelope. I don't want to use the word, but here you ended up winning over more people and probably changing the politics for quite a long time. That is, it's one thing in the political world before I let you go, how does that work in the executive world?
5: You know, uh, we have a lot of, uh, I would call it a crisis of Mm. self-censorship and so one of the things I teach, whether you're in the executive world, you know, in the nonprofit world, uh, or you're just at a Thanksgiving dinner table, I, I, before Thanksgiving, I, I also did a few workshops, uh, helping people broach subjects at Thanksgiving in a, uh, in a compassionate way. And one of the things I like to tell people is we think we need to have courage to speak up and voice our opinion. But if you do it the right way and you come across as thoughtful and fair and compassionate, you actually don't need to have as much courage. And so when, when you do it that way, uh, there are other people who are silencing themselves because they're scared who hear you do it so well. And maybe they'll nod their head affirmatively And perhaps the next time you having role modeled for them how to express your ideas in a compassionate and fair way, pulling people over to our morally superior formula to humanity, maybe the next time they'll take a shot, they'll open their mouth. And when more of the silent majority open their mouth then that's when we start to turn the tide with regard to executives it's really important to just try to come across as likable and friendly and that's like and the first power of persuasion which is how you come across in in person you know smiling And um, giving positive approbation to people, not being too critical, uh, showing that, as Stephen Covey put it, find what's right with what someone else says and not just what's wrong. And then that's also common ground. That's a way. And then once you you make that connection, then you can layer in the facts and then you can layer in your argument. But it's only after you've won uh, their trust. Um, One of the things I learned, learned at writing my column is uh, just maybe to uh, close on this, Margaret Thatcher said, first you win the argument and then you win the vote. And what I have learned, uh, in writing a column and teaching persuasion is actually the first thing you have to do is win their trust Hmm. and then you're winning arguments and we have them can win support.
4: And that, and then you, once you have their trust and you are able to show that you've earned it, they stay with you. And I think that's something that we need to learn. And that doesn't, like you said, that doesn't happen through winning debates and talking points. You have to, you have to really be in there learning, showing that you care. I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people think that these folks that are, you know, the facts don't care about your failing story. They're like, well, you you don't care either. You got to make sure that you people realize you do care. We do care. That, that is so key. How do people find you?
5: Yeah. I'll, I'll say that in a sec, but just remember persuasion is actually saying things that people are already inclined to believe it's already in their head. You just said it in a way that resonated for them. So Mm. in my workshops, I always like to show uh, videos of Bill Maher, who's kind of on fire these days, making, uh, monologues that resonate with people from across the spectrum. And when he says something and people clap, he's found common ground. Mm. Uh, So, uh, so how do people find me? I, uh, my website is engage number two, win.org. I can be reached at Melanie at engage number two, win.org. And I also have another website called the Win coach, uh, where I have a calendar. Some, I do often uh, sort of, random Zooms. People can go to my calendar. I I, I haven't updated it yet. I'll be doing that in the new year. But pretty much every Monday, I'll conduct a Zoom that people can uh, sign up for for a two-hour introduction to my six powers of persuasion.
4: Awesome. I love that. And I think it's so important that people know that this exists because right now we're going into this election season. People are running at all different levels. And there are a lot of questions out there. I mean, I've had people come to me and be like, how do we navigate this issue? You're the person, you know, Melanie Sturm. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here.
5: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.
4: Absolutely. And thank you all for joining us on the Tudor Dixon podcast. For this episode and others, check out com. You can subscribe right there or head over to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and join us next time on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Have a blessed day.
1: I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.